Is change possible? Maybe, maybe you haven't thought about that before, but I, I want you to think about this question. Is change possible? I know, I know politicians promise it to us all the time, but, but really, I, mean, I, I don't mean superficial change. I, I know technology changes all the time, but no, I, I mean fundamental change, deep change, change in, in the way things actually are. I think one of the great ironies of the modern world is the rather contradictory answer we give to this question, depending on the context. So if it's about changing the world, bringing justice, freeing captives, uh, addressing inequity, well, I think the the answer that we tend to give is, is yes. Yes, change is possible. All it takes is leadership. A, a motivated cadre of people who believe in the change that needs to happen and are willing to give themselves to making that change happen. This is really what Marx, Karl Marx, was talking about when he referred to the vanguard of the revolution. A, a dedicated group of, of, of revolutionaries who were willing to, to give themselves to, to making the revolution happen. If, if change was going to occur, there had to be this, this small group of people absolutely devoted, pro- professional revolutionaries, is, is in many ways the way he thought about it. The fact is, you don't have to be a Marxist to appreciate the insight. We, we've seen it happen again and again. Right? right the, the great civil rights movement that many of us lived through would never have occurred were it not for a small group of individuals who tirelessly gave themselves to making that change happen. Freeing the slaves would not have happened if Abraham Lincoln had not personally decided to make that the cause of the Civil War, the, the, the cause that the Union was fighting for. Our, our own freedom as a nation, think, think all the way back to the Revolutionary War, would not have happened had it not been for a small group of people absolutely dedicated to throwing off the yoke of tyranny, George III. It's an insight that we all, at one level or another, even if we reject Marxism, it's an insight that we all appreciate. And that's because of the contradictory answer that we give to the question when it's applied to individuals. So, so whether it's the class interest of the bourgeois, you know, wanting to protect, to protect their financial privilege, or whether it's the racism of the majority who, who want to, to protect their social privilege, or whether it's the tyranny of the aristocracy wanting to protect their personal power, we have long understood that people don't want to change. And they won't change unless someone or something comes along and makes them change. Now, these days, actually, we've taken this argument much further than Karl Marx or Martin Luther King Jr. ever imagined. In a, in a materialist universe, 
a, a universe that has been reduced to simply atoms and chemicals in which people are merely and only and always just their genes and their chemical makeup. Deep internal change is not only impossible by definition, it's not even desirable. Uh, This is why I think in our own culture, self-acceptance, you know, as a healthy individual, just learning to accept yourself for who you are, self-acceptance, and then the corollary, corollary, thank you, I was missing an R, the corollary, the corollary to self-acceptance, of course, is tolerance. I need to accept myself for who I am, and therefore I need to accept you for for who you are. Because after all, people just are. End of story. There is no change. These virtues, these kind of prime virtues in our culture, of course, affect all sorts of discussions going on in our midst. Discussions about sexuality, discussions about gender identity, discussions about mental health. Or, or immigration, discussions about what it means to be a multi-ethnic society. Fundamental to all those discussions is, is the assumption that people don't change. People don't need to change. It is wrong to expect them to change because they are the way they are. However, the world must change. This winter, we're studying the liberation theology. Of the Exodus narrative. And liberation theology is all about change. And in our passage this morning, we come to a passage that's all about change. It's about the promise of change in the world. God God promising that the experience of the Israelites is going to change. But it's also about the necessity of change in the individual, in the person. And as we're going to see. The key to both kinds of change, change in the world, change in the individual, is not dependent on a dedicated group of individuals. It is very much dependent on a dedicated God, a dedicated God. So turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's found on page uh, page 90, 90. Exodus 3. We're going to be looking, as Ron uh, mentioned earlier, at, ex, at chapters 3 and 4. Now, our passage, it's kind of a long passage, and it divides out rather unequally into four sections. But don't worry, it's not really a four-point sermon. Just, just bear with me. Four sections. First, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, we see Moses' call. Moses' call. Second, in chapter 3, verses 11, all the way to chapter 4, verses 12, verse 12, we see Moses' question. So we start with Moses' call, but second, we get Moses' questions. Third, in chapter 4, verses 13 to 26, we see Moses' reluctance. Moses' reluctance. Finally, in verses 27 to 31, the last few verses of chapter 4, we see God's faithfulness. That's kind of the roadmap where we're going. Moses' call, Moses' questions, Moses' reluctance, God's faithfulness. First, Moses' call. Let's look at that. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. When we left Moses at the end of chapter two, he was just a year or so past his 40th birthday. He was recently married. He was a new father. And as chapter three opens, he's doing exactly what you would expect him to do. He's working for his father-in-law. But Moses is no longer in the prime of his life. Chapter seven, verse seven will tell us that 40 years have gone by between the end of chapter two and the opening of chapter three. 40 years tending sheep in the desert. 40 years of life passing him by. 40 years to think about everything he had given up and lost in Egypt. 40 years to think about his failure. And it is in that context that God shows up in Moses' life. God shows up in a burning bush. The angel of the Lord here is, is no ordinary angel. This is what we call a theophany. It's, it's, that's a, it's a big word. It's a $5 word to talk about a visible appearance of the invisible God. And this frames the entire narrative of Exodus. The, the first time God shows up on this mountain, it is to speak to an individual, Moses. And so the only thing that's on fire is, is a bush, because that's about all you really need to attract an individual's attention. But in Exodus 19, we'll be back on this same mountain. For Mount Horeb was also known as Mount Sinai. Once again, God will descend and once again, he will descend to speak, but this time to the entire nation. And so this time, this next time, a bush won't do. When we get to Exodus 19, the entire top of the mountain will be on fire because God will have come down to speak. From the burning bush, from the burning mountain, God speaks. The order is significant. Before God speaks to the nation, before the whole mountain is on fire, God first speaks to Moses. It's 
kind of tender, actually. He, he calls him by name, Moses, Moses. And Moses replies, here I am. And right away, I think, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're reminded of something. You're reminded of God, God speaking to Samuel, 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 and Samuel replying, here I am. Or maybe you think of other calls of, of prophets that will come even later. Uh, Isaiah comes to mind where Isaiah's reply as well is, here I am. But those calls haven't happened yet. The call of Samuel, the call of Isaiah, the call of some of the other prophets haven't happened yet. Actually, those future callings are very much looking back at this calling and modeling themselves on it. Now, I, I think actually what we're meant to be reminded of, if, if we've just been reading this through, and remember this is book two in a five-part series, if we've just been reading through, what we're meant to be reminded of first is Jacob. Jacob, the shepherd who tended his father-in-law's sheep. Jacob, the patriarch, who was fearful of going down into Egypt with his family. And so you'll recall that in Genesis chapter 46, God showed up in Jacob's life, not for the first time, but God, God appears to Jacob in a vision. And God says to Jacob in Genesis 46, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob replies, here I am. And that vision led to Israel going down into Egypt. One of the things that we're seeing here is that the process is being reversed. A new Jacob, a, a new father of Israel is now being called once again by name to lead Israel out of Egypt. Now, for us, we, we must recognize here then in looking at this oh so familiar narrative that the call of Moses is not a vocational call. It's not like, you know, Moses had a job, he was shepherd, and now God's going to, you know, change his job, leader of Israel. The point of connection here isn't for us as we kind of think about what is God calling me to do? What job, what career, what am I supposed to do with my life? No, this is not a vocational call. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant God, has come down to keep his covenant promises to, to have compassion on Israel. And he is going to use Moses in a unique way as the unique covenant mediator to accomplish his plan of redemption. So the point of Moses and the burning bush is not to give us a model for personal guidance, just in case you were wondering. We're, we're not really ever supposed to ask, you know, have I ever had my burning bush experience, my, my burning bush moment? No, you haven't. Because you're not Moses. You know, you're not one of these people that's playing a unique, non-repeatable role in God's plan of redemption as it, as it plays out over history. Now, the point of this narrative for us, I think, is that God accomplishes the salvation of his people through means. And particularly through the means of a person who will be the covenant mediator. And that means that ultimately, the point of Moses and the burning bush 
is not Moses and the burning bush. The point of Moses and the burning bush is to point us to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the person, the means by which God will save us from a far worse slavery than slavery to Egypt. No, he he will save us from a slavery to sin and death. You, You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how Jesus identified with us at his baptism the same way Moses voluntarily identified with with his people, Israel. Well, think again about what happens at the baptism of Jesus. At the baptism of Jesus, Jesus isn't just identifying with his people, but God is identifying with Jesus. God came down visibly. Not in the fire of holy judgment, but in the form of holy love, a dove. And God declared there at Jesus' baptism who he was. He he called Jesus by name. This is my son. And as Hebrews chapter chapter 10 verse 7 tells us, Jesus' response, really not just the verbal response there, but the response of his whole life was to say, here I am. I have come to do your will, O God. Friends, we don't deliver ourselves because left to ourselves, we don't want to be delivered. Left to ourselves, we we don't want to change. We need a deliverer. And, And the man God appointed to accomplish the deliverance of his people is Jesus. Like Moses, Jesus wasn't much to look at. He's he's not the savior we expect. But unlike Moses, he didn't have to stay at a distance. He didn't have to take off his his shoes, keeping, keeping a safe distance from a holy God because Jesus himself is holy, because Jesus himself is God. And yet, this holy God, the the son of God, accepted God's call to be the deliverer, the the mediator of a covenant for for sinners like us. Now, now what is a covenant? I've I've referred to covenant a few times. In one sense, a covenant is merely a relationship. It's a a relationship that, that, that has some terms attached to it, that has a form to it, that has some sanctions to it, some promises given to it. But at its heart, fundamentally, a covenant is a relationship. But a holy God cannot have a relationship with unholy people like us. This is why Moses has to stand at a distance. That's why he can't come any closer. It's why when he finds out who he's talking to, he hides his face. Because when God shows up, we don't say, yay. We say, woe is me. But not Jesus. For Jesus is God. And so if God is going to have a relationship with unholy people, there's going to have to be judgment. And that's what Jesus accomplished. Jesus Christ judged our sin. But friends, he did it by taking our sin upon himself. And then bearing that judgment himself for us on the cross, 
if we will but repent of our sins and put our faith, identify with him. And to prove that he died on the cross, not for his sins, but for our sins, three days later he got up from the grave. Because sin could not hold him. Friends, this is why there is no other means of salvation. Christianity is not an arrogant religion. Christianity is not saying, hey, we're the best and all those other religions are the worst. No, no. Christianity is saying there there is no other mediator. There is no other way. It's not because somehow we're better. It's because Jesus is better. It is because Jesus is the only name by which men and women can be saved. Because there is no other person in all of history who could do what Jesus did. Identify with us. And identify with God and serve as that perfect mediator between God and man. Everybody else, every other religious leader has simply come as a teacher. Moses, really, at the end of the day, was known for his teaching, the the, the lawgiver. The Buddha came as, as, as a teacher. Muhammad came as a teacher. Jesus came. As a mediator. To give his life. As a sacrifice for sinners. To stand in the place. Between us and God. No one else has done that. Because no one else could. And if we would be in a right relationship with God. We must trust in this mediator. Friend if you're here this morning. And you're not a believer. I would encourage you to consider. Who Jesus is. And in fact, in the way in which Moses points to him. And then deal with Jesus. Talk talk to the person you came with. Talk to me afterwards. I'll be standing at the door. I would love to talk to you about what it would mean to identify with this mediator. So that his work will be on your behalf. Now, Now, Christian, I mean, understand who Jesus is in your life. You have a mediator with God. And he's a perfect mediator. I I remember years and years ago, I I was in a situation, I was working with somebody, and there was a massive falling out between the two of us. There was a relational breakdown. And it it was a painful breakdown. And it was one of those breakdowns, and maybe you've had these, where no matter how much we talked about it, the distance didn't get smaller. He just didn't understand where I was coming from, and I did not understand where he was coming from, and it was going nowhere. And it seemed like there was no way we could bridge the gap. And and so finally, kind of in desperation, we pulled in a mediator, right? Someone who would stand in between us and, and hopefully bring about reconciliation because maybe he'd be able to understand both sides and, and, and bring about so, some, some reconciliation. And you know what happened? It utterly failed. Oh, it failed. We didn't know it at the time, but the mediator that we had called in had, had his own problems, had his own kind of junk that was kind of tangentially related to the problems that I was having with this other guy. He was utterly ineffective, had great intentions, but could not bridge the gap. Friends, that is not Jesus. Oh, Christian. You have a perfect mediator. 
You have someone standing between you and the Father who perfectly identifies with the Father and who perfectly identifies with you. Now, I know in this life there are, there are many times, even though we become Christians, even though we know for a fact that we are reconciled with God, nevertheless, we don't feel reconciled because of our own sin, because of our own obtuseness, because of our own stubbornness. We feel far from God. And the temptation at that point is to think, oh, I, I, I want that restored fellowship with God. I want that restored intimacy with God. So, so what I need to do is kind of cl- clean up my act. I need to make sure I string together, you know, at least five or six quiet times in a row. I, I, I need to make sure that I'm, I'm particularly kind to my spouse or my kids or that coworker at work that I really have a hard time with. And, you know, after I've done those things, then I'll be able to go back into the presence of God and once again feel his love for me. Once again feel reconciled to God. Christian, if the law couldn't get you to God the first time, why would you ever think it would get him to you the second time, or the third time, or the fourth time? Christian, you have a mediator. You have a mediator, and you always will. There will never be a day in this life that Jesus doesn't stand between you and God, mediating your need to him and mediating his love to you. Christian, there will, be, there will never be a day in all eternity, not just this life, but all eternity, in which Jesus is not displayed before your very eyes as the perfect mediator. He will always be there, always reconciling you, always expressing God's love for you. Go to him. Turn to him. Second, Moses questions. I wish we could just spend our entire time on, on Moses and the burning bush. But there's more, there's more to deal with. Look in verse 11. Verse 11, Moses questions. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, 
the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. But Moses answered. What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him. What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will help you speak, and and will teach you what to say. In this long section, which is an amazing passage of scripture, Moses asks three questions of God. And every single time, even though it may not be there in your English translations, every single time it begins with a polite but very firm and definite but. Verse 11, but Moses said. Verse 13, but Moses said. Chapter 4, verse 1, but Moses answered. Now, now the questions, I think, are quite understandable. Right? Verse, verse 11 But who am I with with the emphasis on the I? Who am I that you would use to do such a thing? It's it's an honest and frankly humble question. Then verse 13. But who are you? You understand what Moses is asking there. He's 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 looking for confidence here. He's he's asking for credentials. And then finally, chapter four, verse one. But what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe me? What if they think I'm just making it all up? What what he's after here is some proof that he's not just making it all up. After all, anybody can come and just say things. What's the evidence that he should be believed? All, I think, actually very reasonable questions, especially if you were just like talking to your boss who's given you a new assignment that is going to be difficult to do. Only he's not talking to his boss, right? He's talking to God. And what's really striking here are not so much Moses' questions, but God's answers. Did you notice every single time God answers Moses, 
not by by building up Moses self-confidence. You know, Moses, you can do this. Moses, I've been preparing you your whole life for this. Moses, you've got all the gifts and skills that you need to do this. Now, that's not how God answers. Every single time God answers Moses by revealing himself. To Moses and saying, Moses, stop looking at yourself and look at me. Look at who I am. Put your confidence in me. So in response to his question, who am I? God frankly says, it doesn't matter who you are because I will be with you. In response to who are you? God reveals that he's no mere local, tribal, Israelite God. But he is the eternal I am. Yahweh. What, what in, in older translations would have been translated Jehovah. If you're using a King James version, but, but which now we, we would generally write Yahweh. It, it means something like I am that I am. I will be that I will be. It conveys the fact that this God is the God who alone exists uncreated, all sufficient, all powerful, independent, inexhaustible. The God who must reveal himself if we are to know anything about him. Because we can't work from his creation to him. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. But, but then you'll notice there in, in verse 15, God goes on to say that that, that God, the, the Lord, Yahweh, is also the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who has attached himself to his people. To bless them. The personal God. Who makes promises to his people. In response to the question. What if they don't believe me? God not only gives Moses miraculous signs and wonders to perform. Signs that actually only a creator God could do. Signs of doing and undoing. Making and unmaking. But, but then he reminds Moses who he is. The God who made the mouth. The ear. The eye. The brain, the will. In other words, Moses, you don't need to worry about being able to speak. You don't need to worry about whether or not they are going to believe you. After all, I am the creator. It's a stunning affirmation of absolute sovereignty. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator. There's so much that we can learn. From this passage here. We don't want to miss. Where I want to start. I'm not going to spend much time here. but We don't want to miss Moses' humility. I think a genuine humility. The change from chapter 2 verse 11. When, when Moses set out to deliver Israel on his own. Is remarkable. Right? 40 years in the wilderness has done its work. But why? Why is God now ready to use Moses now that he's that he's humble, now that he's willing to say, but, but who, who am I that, that I should do this? Well, friends, it's because God delights to use the humble. God delights to use the weak. God delights to use the unlikely, because when he does, the glory goes where it belongs. Not to us, but to him. So as you think about humility in your own life. Because I assume as a Christian, you want to be used by God. No, not to save Israel. But just in whatever sphere you're in, you want to be used by God. And you know if you're going to be used by God, you 
need to have the same character of humility. So, so as you think about humility in your own life, how do you tell the difference between true humility and false humility? Well, we'll look at God's response there in verse 12. I will be with you. It's not you, Moses. It's, it's me. Do you see what's going on there? False humility is secretly proud. It knows it's weak. It feels its weakness. But what it needs in the face of its own weakness is to be built up. What false humility needs in the midst of its weakness is to be, be given a pep talk. To, to be reminded of how, how great you really are. How capable you really are. False humility is not encouraged by looking to God and who he is. Because it's not God that false humility wants. It's to feel better about itself. Oh, but true humility is different. True humility, like false humility, feels its weakness. But true humility is not encouraged at all by having its eyes turned on itself. True humility finds strength. True humility finds encouragement by being pointed away from itself to God. To the reality of God in his power, in his strength, in his love, and in his glory. So as you seek to cultivate humility in your own life, just ask yourself, what encourages you in your own sense of weakness, in your own sense of neediness? Is it the pep talk about how good you really are? Or is it being reminded of who God really is? That leads, I think, to the main application of this passage for us. The character of God. Consider who God has revealed himself to be here. He's not just the all-powerful guy up, uh, upstairs in charge. You, you, you know, he's, he's not just some, some force or, or, or some power. He, he, he's personal. Now, if you're a believer, that should bring extraordinary encouragement to you. God is concerned for you. Because God is a person. And he relates to you personally. Christianity isn't finally a, a, a religion, a, a code of behavior. God, God is not finally after your behavior. He's after you. It's, it's a relationship with you that, that he is all about. And what he wants is your heart. Because he knows when he has your heart, your behavior will follow. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer, this should challenge you to understand that God is a personal God. This should challenge you. You're not just rejecting an idea in rejecting God. You're rejecting a person, a person who will respond to your rejection the way persons normally do. And that is personally. This isn't an intellectual game. We will face him someday. Whether believer or unbeliever this morning, regardless of where you stand in relationship to God this morning, what we also need to see is that this personal God, as he's revealed here, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who makes promises to real people, this personal God is not our buddy. He's not our peer. Moses hides his face. He takes off his sandals. This God is our creator. This personal God is our king. 
And this king will use his power and his authority and all of his glory to bless his people. And so bring glory to himself. And this king will use all of his power and all of his authority and all of his glory to judge his enemies. And so bring glory to himself. God will be glorified in each person here today. He will be. God will be glorified in your life. He will be glorified in you personally. The only question is how. Will it be through salvation and blessing? Or will it be through judgment? I think as a church, one other application just to draw is this whole interesting story here about signs and wonders. Uh, turning snakes into staffs and staffs into snakes and and, and they're described in the, the very same language that's going to be used throughout the Bible. They're described as signs and wonders. There's been a lot of talk in, in evangelical churches over the years about signs and wonders, about the role of charismatic gifts, about how much we should be looking for for miracles and miracle workers to, to display the power of God, to, to display the truth of God. What I want you to see there in chapter four is that both the nature and the role, the function of these signs that were given to Moses are exactly the same as the signs which Jesus himself did. They are signs that only a creator God could do, that, that a creator God is at work doing and undoing, making and unmaking. That's their nature. Their purpose, their, their function as we see there in chapter 4, it's to confront unbelief. What if they don't believe me? God says, do these signs. These signs are meant to confront and even overcome unbelief. That is exactly how John talked about the miracles of Jesus in his gospel. Jesus did signs in the face of unbelief. Now, what does that mean for us? Should we be looking, you know, the next time we're in... The national forest nearby for, you know, a, a good staff that, that, that maybe we could throw down and turn into a snake and then pick up it by the tail, which you should never do, by the way. Never pick up a snake by the tail. Is, is that what we should be doing? And Paul talked about this a lot in, in his letter to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were all about all of their amazing signs that they could do. Paul points out they've utterly missed the point. The sign, the wonder that we have been given to overcome unbelief in the world today is sitting around you. The church is the sign. The church is the wonder. Because think about who we are. Dead people who've been made alive. Filthy people who have been made all over again, new, renewed. We have been born again. We are the new creation. We are the proof that the creator God is still at work. 
It is our changed lives, individually and corporately, that give miraculous testimony to the truth that God is at work speaking and acting through Jesus Christ. You you wonder what God's evangelism program for the world is? Look around. It's the local church. It's not shape. It's not F-A-I-T-H. It's, it's, it's not this, this latest thing that the Billy Graham Association is, is rolling out in November. Those, those all might be wonderful things. That's not God's evangelism program for the world. No, signs and wonders that overcome belief are God's evangelism program for the world. And that's the church. We must press on. Having his questions answered, you'd think Moses would be ready to sign up. But as you can tell by that last question, what if they don't believe me? That's not where Moses is heading. So we need to look third, much more briefly, at Moses' reluctance. Moses' reluctance. Look in chapter 4, verse 13. But Moses said, Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. There are three expressions of reluctance in these admittedly very strange verses. First, verse 13, I don't want to do this, God. Please send someone else. Well, you can't get much clearer than that, can you? And the irony here is rich, right? From a willing but self-appointed Savior that God does not use, now to an unwilling but God-appointed Savior that God is most assuredly going to use. The second reluctance that we see is in verse 18. The way I would sum it up is, I hope nobody finds out what I'm really up to here. I really don't want people to know. Moses is not going back to see if his family is alive. We already know that. We know why Moses is going back. Now, I'm not saying that Moses is, t- is telling a full outright lie here. I mean, maybe that's part of what he wants to do. He wants to go back and see if any family's alive. But he is sure leaving out a lot of the story. 
And I think we understand that, right? We, we get the fear of man. We, 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 under, we understand what it's like to, to want the respect of, of family members. But then finally, the, the third reluctance is, is there beginning in, in verse 24, which I would sum up as, I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to hedge my bets. This is one of the strangest stories in the whole Bible. But the key to understanding it, it's actually not that hard. The key to understanding it is that even though in your English translations, it, keeps, it, it says the Lord met Moses and, and, and uh, Zipporah took a flint and cut, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Actually, the word Moses never shows up in this passage. Your, your footnote, if, if you've got one, your footnote will probably point out to the fact that, that it's not Moses that these verses are referring to, but Moses' firstborn son. Gershom, that God is threatening to kill. Uh, throughout throughout the, the Hebrew of this particular passage, it's just pronouns, no proper names. Why does God want to kill Gershom? Not Moses, Gershom. Well, it's because he's outside the covenant. He's not been circumcised. He's nearly 40 years old, and he's not been circumcised. And so according to the terms of the covenant with Abraham, this covenant that's been referenced several times by the time we get here, Gershom is to be cut off from his people. Now, Zipporah saves the situation by circumcising her nearly 40-year-old son. Awkward. Right? But the point is not the awkwardness of the situation. The point is that Moses was hedging his bets. Moses had not committed his own sons to the Lord. And so the Lord was going to execute on what was essentially Moses' Egyptian son, the judgment that was going to fall on all the Egyptian firstborn sons. Friends, I think it's in Moses' reluctance here that he is most like us, and least like Jesus. When God planned our salvation, God didn't, Jesus didn't say, could you send someone else? No, he said, send me. When it came time to identify with us, he didn't try to hide his mission. He openly declared that he came to seek and to save the lost. And there was no hedging his bet. Jesus was all in, and the cross proves it. In the end, we see Moses was a savior who needed to be saved, just like us. Just like reluctant followers of Christ that fill this room. Friend, are you here this morning? Are you, are you hedging your bets? Just in case Jesus doesn't pan out. Is there something that you've reserved apart from Christ's lordship in your life? Your kids, your career, your dreams, your pleasures. Friends, there's no hedging with God. To follow Christ in obedience is to be all in. It is to take up your cross and follow him. Is there some place this morning in your life where the fear of man is ruling? Is there some place, some aspect of obedience in your life 
where honestly you're just saying, I don't want to. I don't want to do it. Friends, what would radical obedience, what would radical repentance look like for you? From here, I can't tell you what it will look like, but I can tell you what it will feel like. It will feel like getting circumcised in your 30s. It's going to be painful. It's going to be embarrassing. Christian, Christian, nothing is too embarrassing. Nothing is too painful. Nothing is too difficult when we understand what's at stake here. All in obedience to a Savior who is all in for us. What I want you to notice, just by way of conclusion, is that in the midst of Moses' reluctance, we see what we really need. That if there is going to be real and lasting change, what we need is a faithful God. We see it there in the provision of Aaron that I just read about. We, we see it in, in God patiently working with Moses, warning him to say and do everything he's been commanded. But most of all, we see it in what happened next, right after that, that strange event on the way back to Egypt. Look in verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. And then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the miraculous signs he would commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. As he's heading to Egypt, Aaron meets him, just as God said he would. And then what happens? Well, they gather the elders. And Aaron says everything Moses told him to say, and Moses performs all the signs just as God said he would. What happens next? The elders believe Moses. Just as God said they would. And what happens next? The people hear of God's concern for them. And they bow down. Not to Moses. But to God. And they worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The great I am. Just as God said they would. Because God is not just the God who makes promises, who enters into covenants, who feels great concern for his people. God is Yahweh, the God who keeps his promises, the God who fulfills his covenants, the God whose feeling for his people results in actual deliverance of his people. Friends, this is who we need. A covenant-keeping God who actually changes us and who will one day change the world. Friends, Jesus is the vanguard of the revolution. Jesus is the mediator of the better covenant. And he is a better mediator because he is God.
He sends us not to Egypt, but to the world. But what does he say? I am with you. He reminds us who he is, the God of the covenant, the covenant that he makes in his own blood. And he tells us, here's the sign I'm giving you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples as you love one another. What is our response? It should be the same as what we see here. Despite our questions, which we have, despite our reluctance, which we feel, despite our fear, which we know. Our response is to believe. To bow down. To worship our faithful God who has revealed his faithfulness in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray. We pray that as we are confronted by this text with our own fears with our own reluctance, with our own doubts. Father, we pray that you, by your spirit, would turn our eyes off ourselves. That you would help us to see you for who you are, really, in all of your glory. That you would help us to see who you are in all of your love, in all of your holiness, in all of your covenant-keeping faithfulness at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we pray that that would transform our hearts from hearts of fear and doubt to hearts which believe and worship. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.